this is part 10 um, in a series that I've entitled, But God. We've been making our way through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And this week we're in chapter 5. I'm going to read the first 21 verses of chapter 5. Sounds like a lot. It is a lot. Uh, Oh, by the way, what do you think about all the palm branches? I was just looking down, noticing this one on my navel, and I thought, I should bring attention to these things. Uh, my wife was here all day yesterday. She left in the morning, and I didn't see her till like 10 o'clock at night, and uh, she was here decorating. She was doing a whole bunch of things for our church, but I mean, this is all of her handiwork. Is not is my wife not only an amazing preacher, but an amazing decorator. She's an omnicompetent woman. Um, thank you, honey. This, this right here makes me feel so festive. Right, this, I feel like it's Palm Sunday for some reason. I don't know why. Uh, okay, Ephesians chapter 5. There's one over here too. All right, <laughs> Ephesians, chapter, <laughs> Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Paul writes, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving." For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, But understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And may God help all of us to understand what's happening here and what he wants us to learn here. Let's pray together. God, we know that it is not my thoughts or my opinions or my insights 
that can ultimately help anybody or set anybody free. That is your work alone. That is something only you can do. It is your truth which sets us free, which liberates us. And so this morning, I pray that it would be your voice that we hear, that it would be your truth that transforms us. It would be your truth that liberates us. I pray that you would give us ears to hear and minds that understand and hearts that readily receive this truth about our life and about our freedom. And so I pray, oh God, that you would do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And with one voice we pray, come thou fount of every blessing and tune our hearts and our minds to see and to savor your amazing grace. And it's in Christ's name that we pray, amen. So I was reading through these verses the last few days and thinking to myself, what am I going to say? I mean, this is some heavy-hitting stuff. These verses, believe it or not, as clear as they are, and they are pretty clear and straightforward, they're also very tricky, very tricky. I'll explain why in a few minutes. But it's very important. One of the reasons I take so much time to explain, especially when we're studying a book of the Bible, the reason I take so much time to explain the structure of that book is because reading certain passages out of their larger context make us really confused and can really get us on the wrong track. And so understanding every part in light of the whole is extremely important. And I mentioned two weeks ago that the Apostle Paul divided this letter nicely into two parts. In chapters 1 through 3, he preaches grace. And in chapters 4 through 6, he describes what grace and practice looks like. In other words, he declares vertical grace in chapters 1 through 3, and he describes horizontal grace in chapters 4 through 6. So in the first three chapters, Paul describes God's work of grace for us, and in the final three chapters, Paul describes God's work of grace through us. So really, the final three chapters answer this question. What does it look like to live free? What does grace and practice look like? What are the marks of a set free life? What does life begin to look like and feel like under a banner that reads, it is finished, which we talk a lot about here. I told you um, that I have a friend who once described the Christian life as adjusting to our freedom. And I think he's right. We have such a natural proclivity to things that ultimately enslave us even when we think that they're setting us free. Things that kill us even though we think it makes us feel alive. Um, and so my friend I think is right in describing the struggle of the Christian life as adjusting to our freedom. Not going back to those dry cisterns that we've gone to so many times to try to find something refreshing to drink and, and find just the opposite. Well, in these verses that I just read, Paul describes what Christianity looks like ethically, behaviorally. He gives a lot of a lot of do's and don'ts. In fact, these verses are peppered with do's and don'ts. He clearly lays out what we should and shouldn't do. 
the kinds of things we should pursue and the kinds of things we should avoid. He's super clear about that. And when we read verses like this, we typically read them thinking that they are a checklist of things to avoid and things to achieve in order to keep God happy with us. Okay, it's natural. Because we are conditional people living in a conditional world with other conditional people. Uh, Conditionality is our default mode. And so when we read a passage like this, our natural proclivity is to think that these are a checklist of things to avoid and things to pursue in order to sort of keep God happy with us, to stay in God's good graces. I mean, for many years... I read all of the lifestyle instruction parts of the Bible like this as if they were there to teach me how to keep God's love and favor so that God would like me more when I would do these things listed here well and when I was failing at doing these things, God would like me less. Or far worse, if I was perpetually failing in doing these things, maybe it was a sign God didn't love me at all. In other words, I used these verses as a barometer for myself to try and evaluate how God felt about me and how I was doing in my spiritual walk or whatever. But is this really the, ra- the way to read them. I mean, I, uh, I was thinking about this last night. You know, the Bible seems to contradict itself in some pretty big ways. Now, it doesn't, but it seems to. It feels like it from time to time. I mean, on the one hand, the Bible tells us that God has settled all accounts between he and us. That there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That there is nothing that can separate us from God's love because God's love for us doesn't depend on us. It depends on what Jesus has done for us. Okay, the Bible's clear about that. Very clear about that. It tells us that, it tells us that there's nothing we can do to make God love us more and there's nothing we can do to make God love us less. Paul makes that very clear in a bunch of places. The Bible makes that clear in a bunch of places. But it's probably never clearer than it is in Romans chapter 8, which I affectionately refer to as the great eight. It's my favorite chapter in the Bible. It begins and ends with two explosive truths. It begins by saying, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is huge. And then it ends by saying, there's nothing in heaven and nothing on earth that can separate you from God's love because Jesus paid it all. And you now live your life under a banner that reads, it is finished. That, that chapter's amazing. If you ever need to be reconvinced that God's love for you doesn't depend on you, read Romans 8. And so the Bible makes that extremely clear. Um, but on the other hand, the Bible has plenty to say about how we should live our lives. I mean, these verses are testimony to that. I mean, it it talks clearly about the things we should do and the things we should avoid, clearly. So on the one hand, it says that all accounts between God and us are settled because of Jesus. And on the other hand, it makes very plain the way we should live our lives. Um, So how in the world are we supposed to understand this? Like, like how are we supposed to put these two things together? I mean, um, how do we make sense of this? If everything has been settled between God and us, then why does it matter how we live? Who cares? I mean, what difference does it make if I do good things or do bad things, however those things are defined? 
what difference does it make if God's going to love me anyway? Okay, if all accounts have been settled for Christians, if all accounts have been settled between God and us, then why all of the instructions on how to live here? Like, what, what difference does it make? What are these instructions here for? Okay, that's, that's the question. It's the question anytime we come in contact with a passage like this where there are clear instructions. And I've had many conversations over the years with people who seem to push back on the idea that God loves Christians unconditionally because of passages like this. They go, well, there seems to be a lot of conditionality here. But is there? That's the question I want to answer this morning. Um, how do we make sense of this? There are, there are two ways to read passages like this. We can read these instructions as if-then statements, or we can read these instructions as because-therefore statements. Okay, there's really only two ways to read this. If-then or because-therefore. An if-then statement, if statement is conditional. If you do this, then I will do that. Okay, we're very familiar with that. You know, if you eat your spinach, then you can have your dessert. If you get straight A's, then you'll get into a good college. I mean, we're very, we're very familiar with conditionality, if, then, tit for tat. You do so much for me, then I will do so much for you. A because therefore statement is unconditional. It says, because I have already done this, therefore now you can go and do that. Okay, there's no conditionality there. It's, it's unconditional. It is simply stating a fact. Because I have done this, you can now go and do that. So the question is, are these verses if-then statements set within a conditional framework, or are they because-therefore statements set within an unconditional framework? Does that make sense? Okay, I hope so. If it doesn't, I'm sorry. Um, now, that's really the question. Are, is what we read here, which we're going to dive into in a second, is what we read here, if then or because therefore? Well, I said at the very beginning that it's extremely important for us to understand, especially as we make our way through letters like this, what it says as a whole. What's the, what's the context as a whole? And Paul has already told us in the first three chapters that we have been chosen, graced, redeemed, rescued, adopted, forgiven, and sealed forever in Christ. He's already told us that. Spent the first three chapters eloquently making that point. He has already told us that we are eternally loved, accepted, and secure solely and exclusively because of Jesus' obedience and his performance, not our obedience and our performance. He's made that clear. So any interpretation of these verses that would contradict that or seem to go against that truth that he's already presented would be a misreading or a misunderstanding of it. Um, so these verses, um, I mean, there, there are no, he's made it clear, the, there's, there are no strings attached to his love that before the foundation of the world, God determined to set his affection on us. Before we had done anything good or bad, God had already determined to love us, 
Okay, he makes that clear when he talks in chapter one about being chosen and predestined and all of those things. What he's talking about there is God made a choice about you long before you made any choices. And his choice was to love you and to set his affection on you and to give you all of the spiritual blessings that he talks about in chapter one. Okay, um, so that there are no strings attached to his love. So these verses, these verses aren't conditional. Okay, like the verses we looked at two weeks ago, these verses are a call to enjoy and to embody the freedom that we already have. It's like God saying, you are free, now live free. He says that very, very clearly in, uh, in the first few verses. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Love others because you've already been loved. He doesn't say God's love for you depends on whether or not you love others. He says love others because God has loved you. You, you can now love others instead of trying to always get for yourself and take for yourself, which is a burdensome way to live. You can now, you are now set free to give, to spend your life giving rather than taking because God has ultimately given to you. You can spend your life going to the back rather than always jockeying for position and fighting to get to the front because your worth and your value and your security is not dependent on how your position, but on what Jesus has done for you. Uh, so he's basically saying here, you are free, live free, okay? Um, they are an invitation. These verses are an invitation, in other words, to become what we already are, to, to grow into the gift. He makes that clear in verse 8, where he says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are the light in the Lord. Therefore, walk as children of light. In other words, you, you're no longer living in the dark, so don't, you're no longer a person of darkness, so don't live darkly, is what he's saying. You've already been rescued from that. You've been brought from here to here, so don't go back here. This was not a good place to be. This is not good for you. Okay, this is a place of darkness and death, and this is a bad place to be. I've now brought you over here, so don't go back there. That's... That's what he's saying here. Um, now, this may seem overly theoretical, but let me tell you something, okay? Getting clear on this is incredibly important because when this gets confused, religion replaces Christianity, behavior modification replaces the gospel, and our work replaces Christ's work. That's what happens, when these verses become conditional in our minds and they become things we have to do to ensure that God stays in love with us, then that's a massive transformation from Christianity to religion, from the gospel, from good news to advice, from a focus on Jesus' work for me to my work for him. And make no mistake about it, getting that wrong will ruin your life. Let me read you something that, um, a note that I got a number of months ago from a woman who said this, I've been struggling with my faith for many years and now I think I understand why. 
I was raised to believe that the more you do, the more you're worth. That the better you behave, the more you're loved. From my parents, to my spouse, to God. I was confused. I was exhausted. In my world, always being good and doing everything right was the only option. And we all know that is a losing proposition. So you get this wrong and life starts feeling really heavy and hopeless. Um, Henry Nouwen, I think, said it so well in describing the forces at work against us when he said this, all day long we hear loud voices that demand, prove that you're worth something, do something relevant, do something spectacular, do something powerful, then you will earn the love you so desire. That's the message of the world. All too often that is the message of the church also. Um, I mean, we already feel the weight of having to make ourselves lovable to get other people to love us. Imagine how miserable we would be if God's love and acceptance of us was something we had to go out and earn by the good we do and the bad we avoid. I mean, one of the only things that enables me to endure rejection from other people and lovelessness from other people is the realization that I never have to endure rejection from God or lovelessness from God, never. But imagine if the fear lurked inside of us whereby we thought in order to get God's love, in order to get God's acceptance, in order to get God's approval, we have to do certain things and we have to avoid other things. That is, that is a weight that none of us are strong enough to bear, way too big. Um, so these, this is the best way for me to uh, summarize this. These are not instructions on how to get God's love. They are instructions on how to walk in the love we already have. Okay, that's about as clear and simple as I can put it. If you haven't understood a word I've said up until this point, I'm sure you can understand that, okay? These are not instructions, and I'm not just talking about this passage. I'm talking about all of the passages in the Bible like this, okay? All of the lifestyle instruction passages that are in the Bible. These are not instructions on how to get God's love. These are instructions on how to walk in the love we already have. Okay, now that that's crystal clear to all of you, um, I want to look at this stuff. Because everything Paul tells us to stay away from in these verses are things that we engage in only if we're trying to save ourselves. Okay, let me explain what I mean by that. When we engage in things like he mentions here, like sexual immorality or covetousness or gossip or idolatry, talking behind people's back, harboring grudges, all that kind of stuff, when we engage in things like this, we do so because we're trying to make ourselves happy. We're trying to satisfy ourselves. We're trying to build ourselves up. We're trying to do whatever we can to feel loved and accepted. In other words, we're trying to create meaning and value for ourselves. We're trying to fill voids. We're trying to make forge an identity. 
We're doing all of these things and we're engaging in these things because we think that engaging in these things will make us happier, will make us more satisfied, will make us more content, will fill the voids in our lives. But all of these things, as we saw two weeks ago, are ultimately marks of an enslaved life. When we fail to believe that everything we need, God has already given to us, then life becomes a passionate pursuit to fix ourselves, to satisfy ourselves, to use other people at all expenses to fill the void that we feel. That's what life begins to feel like. I then become primarily concerned with getting my needs met or fulfilling my desires or satisfying my longings or making sure my expectations are being met. Now, if you're married or if you have ever been in any kind of serious relationship, you know that when this stuff, when these ingredients are in the mix, things suck, okay? Things are tense, things feel heavy, things are not enjoyable at all. Um, These things that we pursue, these sort of selfish pursuits that Paul identifies here are all pursuits that that we engage in because we're trying to We're trying to save ourselves. We're trying to rescue ourselves. We're trying to satisfy ourselves. We're we're trying to make ourselves happy and content and all of those things. Um, And you know as well as I do that when life becomes all about me getting what I think I need to be happy and fulfilled, it feels very heavy. It feels very frustrating. It feels very hopeless. I've had a number of conversations with people over the years who are stuck in these very things that Paul describes here. You know, they, they, they wish they didn't have these sorts of proclivities, but they do. They wish that they wouldn't always gravitate toward anger or giving people the silent treatment when, they don't meet, when their expectations aren't met, whatever. They realize that they have a toxicity inside of them that is adverse to healthy relationships. And they realize that. And, uh, and no one who ever engages in any of this stuff that I've talked to over the years uh, feels free. None of them. They all, they all wish that they weren't doing these things, most of them. The ones who are, not all of them, but the ones who are for the most part self-aware at some level. They realize this is, this is not good. It's like a drug addict who knows that the drug is bad for them, but they can't stop going back to it. I mean, this is, this, they, th- that person doesn't feel free. A person who is addicted to some kind of substance doesn't feel free. It could be something as like nicotine or something like alcohol or something like drugs. We know that, okay? We know when it comes to substances like that, that the people who are addicted, who can't seem to get away from it, they don't feel free, and it's a vicious cycle because they, they don't feel freedom because of this, and so they do this because it gives them a sense of momentary freedom, Okay, it's just it's this vicious cycle. So as I've read as I've read these verses, I was thinking about myself and a handful of other people over the years um, who were engaged in any of these things, and they were not free. They were actually longing to be free from this stuff. Um, now Paul describes it here as the difference between living in the dark and living in the light. I think it's like six or seven times he contrasts dark, darkness and light in these verses. Um, and I know what that difference feels like. And I'm sure that a lot of you do too. I know 
for instance, what it feels like to live in the dark. I know what that feels like. I know what it feels like to live with secrets, to hide parts of who I am from others for fear that they will reject me, to live with hidden struggles, to, to sneak around the truth. I know what it feels like to live like that. I know what it feels like to pretend that I'm stronger than I am, to try to portray to people that I'm more competent than I am, that I'm more secure than I am. I know what it feels like to lie about myself and others to get what I want. I know what it feels like to live with fear that I'll be found out, that people will finally realize that I'm not a, a strong, competent, secure person. I know what that feels like. Life in the dark, in other words, is slavery. I mean, it just is. It's heavy. It's a burden. It's a life of fear and frustration. You know that. If you've ever lived in any way, shape, or form like that, then you know how that feels. I also, in contrast, know what it feels like to live in the light. I, I know what it feels like to finally come clean. I know what it feels like to to own the bad stuff, to tell the truth about myself, to not live with secrets. I know what it feels like to be honest about my insecurities and my fears and my hurts. I know what it feels like to be okay admitting that I'm not okay. I know what it feels like to not have to hide anymore because God loves me even if nobody else does. I know what that feels like. That's living in the light. It's living your life unafraid of the truth, unafraid. That's why John says in 1 John, perfect love casts out all fear, all fear. Well, what does that even mean? Well, God's perfect love for us, this announcement, this declaration, this promise to you and to me that he will never leave us, that he'll never forsake us, that he already knew all of the bad things about us and all of the bad things we would do before we were born and he decided to love us anyway. Okay, when, we, when, we're, when our hearts are convinced of that, that perfect love casts out fear. It casts out the fear that if we screw up, God's gonna leave us. It casts out the fear that I need this person's acceptance in order to feel like I matter. When in reality, you don't. The only person's acceptance that you need is God's and you already have it. That's what John means when he says perfect love casts out all fear. It's, it's God's perfect love for us, gripped and grasped by our hearts, begin to mitigate the fear that we live with. Living in the light is living um, fearless in the sense that the truth, the truth, about God, the truth about me, the whole truth, the good, the bad, the ugly truth about me, all of that stuff, when I acknowledge it, when I own it, when I live in light of it, sets me free. There is so much lightness and freedom that accompanies truth, truth, and truth is scary. I know. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying this is a walk in the park. Truth is scary. For those of us who have some measure of self-awareness, then you know that you're not as good as other people may think you are. 
You're not as strong as other people may think you are. Maybe you're more selfish. We spend our time instinctively concealing the worst parts of ourselves. I mean, we, we do this by nature. Uh, kids are actually much more um, out there than we are. They don't care if you're preaching. They'll cry anyway, okay? <laughs> Love you guys. <laughs> um, I mean, they, kids literally, we, as we get older, we become increasingly, um, we become increasingly capable, mindful of how to hide those parts of ourselves that we don't want other people to see because if they see it, they might reject us. We, I mean, this is instinctive to us. Okay, this, is, this comes natural to us. Um, and so living in the light is freedom. It's pure liberation. Admitting the truth about ourselves, living in light of the truth about ourselves, in light of God's truth that he loves us, uh, is pure liberation. So I'll say this. Those who are the most free are those who have the least fear telling the truth about themselves. And those who have the least fear telling the truth about themselves are those who know at the deepest levels how unconditionally loved they are by God. This is why the unconditionality of God's love is such a practical thing. It sets us free from so much. And we, we read passages like this and we get so preoccupied with the what that we don't even think about the why. <laughs> this is a checklist. Well, what do we got to do? It's all about what we got to do. What? What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? And we're addicted to that stuff. So much so that we twist passages in the Bible to make it primarily about us and how to secure more of God's love and blessing. Um, so we read passages like this and we get so preoccupied with the what that we don't even think about the why. I mean, why should we avoid the bad stuff? Why should we practice the good stuff? Why should we steer clear of the darkness and live in the light? Why? I've told you this before, I think, but I... Um, this was a number of years ago. I was speaking uh, at a church, and I uh, was telling my story and preaching the gospel through the retelling of my story, and I opened it up for some live Q&A when I was finished. And after some questions came from the floor, one guy raised his hand in the back, and he said, okay, if what you just said is true about God's love for us, then what is it that would prevent me from committing adultery like you did, okay? Which was, I'm not sure he was asking nicely, but I can't really tell in those situations. Like there's a part of me that feels like I want to punch him, and then there's another part that feels like I need to help him. I, I don't know, I, you know, oh, wretched man that I am who will rescue me from this body of death. Regardless, so I, I, I get the question, and I said, well, that's easy. That's an easy answer. He said, well, Why? I said, because it will freaking ruin your life. <laughs> That's why. That's why you don't do it. You don't not do it because if you do, God will love you less. My gosh, that's not, that's not up for debate. That's not on the table anymore. 
The reason you don't do it is because you will destroy yourself. You'll destroy other people that you love. You will hurt people. It is nothing but destruction that comes from that stuff. So if you want to do it, have at it. But trust me, you're going to regret it because it is destructive. It ruins things. It toxifies things. It rips things apart that were intended to be together. But the idea that we don't do certain things because if we do, somehow we're sacrificing our place with God, get that out of our heads. Okay, that, that is not on the table anymore. Okay, we're, the, the um, horizontal consequences does not mean vertical condemnation. Okay, and let me also say this, that no vertical condemnation does not mean no horizontal consequences. Okay, so we can have no condemnation with God and some really bad consequences because of stupid decisions we make. And when we're in the throes of those bad consequences, that shouldn't cause us to question whether we are condemned or not. Again, that's off the table, done deal, it is finished. We don't have to worry about that anymore. Um, and so why should we avoid the bad stuff and practice the good stuff? Why, why should we steer clear of the darkness and live in the light? Well, I think Paul answers this best in Galatians chapter 5. Galatians is a, a parallel. Galatians 5 and 6 is a, is a parallel section to his, uh, this section in Ephesians and he answers this question best. Why should we steer clear of the darkness and live in the light? Why should we avoid the bad stuff and practice the good stuff? Paul says it in Galatians 5 when he says, it was for freedom that Christ has set us free. Therefore, stand firm and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. That says it all. Why? Why not do these things? And why do these things? Because this is slavery and this is freedom. This is darkness and this is light. This is secrecy and this is joy. And, and I've rescued you and put you over here. Don't go back there. And if you do and when you do, you'll experience the, the consequences of going back there. And, and God's always the, the father welcoming home his prodigal children. Always, always. He's always the good shepherd who's going after the sheep that goes off, runs away again and again and again, always. So if you're over here going, oh my gosh, I'm, I've been living in the dark and I've been living like a slave and I've been living with secrets and I, I don't feel like I can tell the truth about, I don't, I'm scared. You can always, God's not telling you to clean up your act before you come home. He's saying the door is always open and the light is always on, always. I, I purchased you to live in freedom. Come on, come back over here. Um, stay away from all that dark stuff, not because God will reject you if you don't. Stay away from all the dark stuff, the bad stuff, because it will make you miserable. <laughs> I mean, that's really what it boils down to. It'll make you sad and depressed and scared all the time. There's nothing worse than living with secrets. Nothing. 
Always afraid. Always having to cover your bases. There's nothing worse than having to lie to cover your bases. Living in a perpetual fear that someone somewhere is going to find something out. Just stinks. Live in the light. The freedom that is your inheritance waits for you there. Waits for you there.